If you have God's Word, I'd love to return to Mark chapter number 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10. We will resume our exposition of the book of Mark in verse number 23 and take our reading this morning through verse number 31. If you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. And in Mark chapter number 10, verse 23, we read these words. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Uh, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Again, Father, we praise you for the privilege of gathering. We praise you, Father, for your word. Um, well, what a privilege it is to have the word of God in our own language, Father preserved by you through providence and faithful men throughout the ages um, who fought and died um, for that right that every man would have the word of God in his own language. Um, and this time it's not fully accomplished. We're praying to that end that the whole world would hear the gospel and have the word of God before their eyes. So, Father, we count it a tremendous blessing in so many ways to have it before us this morning. Um, so, Father, would you help us to be faithful? Father, would you help me? Father, would you hide me behind your Son in Christ? And that this morning, uh, that's all that they would see. May we exalt your Son, um, whom without any of this would not be possible. Father, would your Spirit rule and reign in our hearts? Father, would it just have a free a freedom, a free course um, in the lives of your people? Father, if there's someone here today, whether it's um, a child or an adult that doesn't know Christ, Father, may today be the day you give them a new heart and a love for you, Father, as they see the glory and the majesty of Christ in a new and measurable way, in a way that they had not seen before, in a way that would prompt them, Father, to humble their hearts and bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, would you help us as children of yours to continue to do the same, to bow the knee today, Father, to the very word of God and the King who is in our midst, walking among the candles. Father, may we honor him. May he be our end as we approach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated, but thank you. As I said, we'll continue this morning our exposition of the, um, the book of Mark. Um, last week we began a portion and an encounter 
Um, as Jesus counsels a young man that we referred to and um, Christians throughout the ages have referred to as the rich young ruler. Um, we ended in verse 22, but really the account doesn't end there. Um, the account ends there in some sense with that young man. Um, but as a result of that occurrence, what we see in these verses that we've read this morning um, is an extension of that account in a conversation that our Lord has um, with His disciples. But you may remember that the rich young ruler turned away sorrowful from our Lord because he wasn't quite ready to commit himself to the demands of discipleship that Christ laid upon him and essentially the demands of the gospel. And with some sense, I do have a bit of respect for the way that he did it. He doesn't pretend or act like he could even meet those demands. Um, he's honest with himself and he's honest with Christ. He's honest in the midst of a crowd where oftentimes pressure by your peers is, uh, forces you to do something that you do not desire to do. And that's one reason I'm convinced that this young man was a sincere um, and even some, in some sense an honest um, young man. He simply walks away. And the text in the, the previous portion says that he was sorrowful or um, that he was, you may have a, a translation that says that he was sad. Um, but why so sad, you might ask? Because the, Christ, because the demands of Christ um, were the demands of His great love. The text says that His great love was possessions. And as we labored in the text, the reason He wouldn't give up His great love, in some sense, was because He didn't understand the gospel. He had a fundamental understanding about who God was. He had a fundamental understand, misunderstanding about what the law required. And he had a fundamental misunderstanding about what the gospel was and the fact that it demanded and what, what, what was meant by demanding faith and repentance. I mean, this is something that's not quite unique to him, though. You know, and this is something that is overwhelmingly true in our day as well. You know, there's a famine in the day. And probably in every day, whenever you begin to calculate and look at history, um, and that's why one reason Jesus gives us this, so that every generation throughout time um, proceeding from this would have recorded for them um, an account of a man whom often describes many of us, if not most of us, and all of us. You know, and we preach against him and we proclaim against him and, and we do so because it's many of us and maybe I do so because he often in the past couple of weeks, have really reminded me of me, who grew up not an extreme rebellious young man, but moral in nature, wanting to please others, in some sense wanting to please God, but at the same time wanting Him to um, affirm me and contribute in some way um, to my salvation, to know that I earned it. And that was me for much of my life. And in some sense, those gleanings still last even as a believer. And that's a man that I have to die to too often. And it was because in my younger days as a young man, um, there was a lack of a knowledge of God, a lack of the true nature of the law of God and even the gospel. Um, that there is no gospel. The gospel cannot save. The gospel will not save um, anyone um, like that. And again, it's, 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 it's prevalent in our day. It's prevalent in preaching. It's prevalent even in teaching. It's not just prevalent in our hearts. It's propagated um, in pulpits and in ministries all throughout our land. 
Um, we as a church at large have so emasculated God in the gospel of our age that according to most people, God's nothing more than a universally loving grandfather who lays a gospel before us in which the good news is that, that you can have the benefits of Christ um, without fulfilling any of the demands of Christ. We've so weakened the gospel that we offer full and free pardon without ever bowing the knee or ever, or ever uh, proclaiming that one must bow the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And while most people wouldn't articulate it quite as clear and as bold as that, um, they would simply cast off the indifference, the apathy, or just blatant disobedience to God's Word on the fact that they're not perfect. We shouldn't expect perfection because essentially we're all, all sinners. And that we're always going to be sinners. That sin is okay. Um, but at the same time, there is a growing number of people who actually argue for this. Um, there is something called a free grace movement. There is something called a hyper grace movement. There is something called easy believism um, that argue for a gospel that demands no repentance, no commitment to the cross outside of a mere profession of faith. And um, you say, people honestly believe that. I, I listened to a video just the past couple of weeks of a man who literally uh, sat on the screen and said uh, that a six-year-old who professes faith in Christ will be secure for all of his life regardless of whether he abandons Christianity, uh, if he becomes an atheist, or if he becomes an axe murderer. Uh, he simply, uh, in that, while, obtain, while retaining the promise of eternal life because he did believe at some point um, would merely lose the benefits in this life of communion with Christ and all the other virtues that come with being a Christian um, nestled in a, in, in, a, in a faithful church. So the idea was is that faith is nothing more than just a mere mental assent um, to the knowledge of the truth. But when you read the Scriptures, or at least when I, I read the Scriptures, by the, it seems to me overwhelmingly present and evident um, that faith is more than just a mere mental ascent, that it's more than just a mere profession of faith. Because if it was a single profession of faith, um, then, it, then it, it seems to me that, that, that when you take faith in its totality, that, that faith is more than just proclaiming or professing Jesus Christ, that laid upon that are also demands that are required of us, and that the true faith of a, of a son, a daughter, a child of God um, is manifest in an obedient life. In an obedient life. Um, and I think you see that all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, um, that you know, Matthew chapter 13, uh, we went through it, I think, in Mark chapter number um, 3, with the seed and the soils. And the different soils represent the different hearts, and that the true believer um, is represented by a soil that whenever the seed um, takes root in, it produces fruit that is long and lasting. Um, you see the commands of Christ, you see the commands of the apostles, you see the epistles, you see um, all throughout the Word of God that, that in the life of a believer that the Word of God takes root and it roots um, in, the heart of a, which, in the heart of a man or a woman and it extends to the hands and to, to the will. That the gospel um, all throughout calls for a radical faith commitment. Contained within the term faith is within a concept of an obedient faith. John 3.36 um, in the English Standard Version says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Um, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And you see the contrast in that particular verse. And Do you believe? Um, if you believe, you have eternal life. If you disobey, um, the wrath of God abides upon you. And that's why Paul in uh, Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.25 can talk about the obedience of faith. 
That faith in the New Testament is something that so transforms the life of the person that it bears the fruit of obedience. Now, what was the difference between that and uh, this man, this rich young ruler? Well, this man believed that he could earn his way to heaven. He believed that obedience was not um, the outgrowth or the fruit of conversion and a new heart and the law of God being written upon it, um, but it was a means by which salvation was obtained. Jesus stands in direct opposition of that statement. And, he understood, and, and the man misunderstood the nature and the purpose of the law. And I love what J.C. Ryle um, says. He says, so long as we think that we can keep the law, Christ profits us nothing. He whose eyes have been opened to see the spirituality of the commandments will never rest, he says, until he finds his rest in Christ. And that's the truth. That we are saved and we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But at the same time, it's a faith that saved, the faith that saved is never alone. Saving faith is a repenting faith. It is a faith that embraces Christ and follows Him as Lord. Jesus never sold them a gospel that said you can follow me and rest in your idols as well. It's a faith that implores a man to turn to Christ and in turning to Christ, he, he turns away from those things that he was once enslaved to because of the new love that he has. This is what Jesus taught. You know, not only in this passage, but in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, he calls them to a radical commitment of self denial. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, um, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife or children, brothers and sisters, um, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear the cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, he says. Um, what about the nature of the rest of the New Testament? What about Paul? Some would say, well, Paul doesn't preach a, um, a gospel like that. Oh, Paul preaches a gospel just like that. Romans 2.4 says, he writes to Rome and he writes to you. He asks them this question, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Again, remember that back here in Mark chapter 10, what was the thing that he, he didn't understand about God? It was the goodness of God that led him to repent, that should lead to repentance. But he goes on in Romans, says, but in accordance with your hardness of your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself uh, wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. And then he says these words, eternal life to who? To those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, he says, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath will be very end. Revelation 2 and 3 go on. The, the, the Apostle John there writes, and he speaks of those who are promised to eat of the tree, the tree of, uh, of life, who are going to sit on thrones. And who does he say um, are inheritors of those promises? To them that overcome. 1 John 5, 5 tells us who those who overcome. The same writer writes these words, and he says that he is he, or who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In the previous verse, in 1 John 5, 4, John says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Our faith. That you know how people enter into life, eternal life. He says, the only way you're going to do that is by overcoming, by persevering, by enduring, by battling, by fighting, by trusting, by hoping. How is that even a possibility? One might ask. John tells us by faith. By faith, by saving faith, 
Not by a mere mental assent, but by a God-wrought faith in the heart of a man and a woman that caused them to push, to live, to fight, to obey. And that's what John says in 5.4 there. That whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So the great question is, is are you born of God? Because when God lays hold of a sinner, that's what type of faith God produces in their life. A faith that, that perseveres, a faith that pushes on, a faith that battles out and uh, works out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Thus, when Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and tells him to sell everything that you have, um, in some sense, he's simply saying nothing more than believe in me. Because the type of belief that believes in Christ is a type that works out its salvation and allegiance to Him, but, but He would not. He wouldn't do it. Given the context and the fact that He was a fine, earnest young man, and His view of the law being a means to earn His way to salvation meant His eternal peril if at some point in a later date He didn't finally and fully come to Christ. You know, the thing that convicts me is that um, it may very well have been too that his riches weren't a selfishly indulgent type of riches. But it was the kind that he looked at and he saw that he had great possessions and maybe they could use those to earn eternal life too, you know? Maybe he was using it for good to fulfill the law. Maybe he was using it to take care of the poor. Maybe he thought, if I give these things up, how in the world will I take care of the synagogue? How in the world will I take care of a family? How in the world will I feed the poor? How in the world I will lose my ability to make it? I don't know. Maybe that's it. That's skeptical skepticism. I, I don't know. That's just me speculating. Um, but maybe that's why he walked away sad. Because he still had a misunderstanding about what the gospel was and who God was and, and all that. And what that does is that sparks a conversation with the disciples in verse number 23. You can imagine what's running through their minds at this time, or maybe you can't. Um, but yeah, I don't think we really need to wonder. Of course, the text tells us that Jesus draws out of them their hearts. And it's a similar heart to actually what the rich young ruler had as well. Jesus says in verse number 23, he looks around and once the rich young ruler is gone, he looks around and he looks at his disciples with intentment. And, and I try to read this somewhat with a sanctified imagination and not with just a monotone voice and maybe with some emotion. Maybe our Lord, um, in some sense, was sad as well because he looked at the young man with love, the text said previously. He loved him. He, he graciously endured with him. He laid before him the gospel in some sense. And you can imagine our Lord as now the man is walking away. How I've, I, and, and I, I, I'm hesitant somewhat to relate it to me, but, 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 but how often we've engaged with our children or with unbelievers or in an evangelistic attempt, and it just doesn't go quite the way that I thought that it would. Of course, the Lord knew how it would go. Um, but in some sense, you can imagine as that person walks away still unbelieving, not recognizing their own sin, not, not, not submitting to, to God's kingdom, how uh, you, you hold your, your, your voice until they walk away or you restrain your heart and then you look at the person next to you, man, I just don't understand how, how to say it more clearly. You know, God help me. What did I do wrong? And I know Jesus didn't go through that, but maybe there was in his human nature a, somewhat of a frustration or something within him that, that caused him to just look around at his disciples and say, man, you know how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God such that he's going to repeat himself as it astonishes 
You know, as you look at your children and, and you try to say something, with a, take a moment of, of teaching after something has happened, they've seen something, something devastating, something uh, astonishing, something that will take their breath away, something that they won't understand. And, and after the scene clears, you look at them with this, this, this uh, emotion and you say, man, I need to talk to you about that, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible says there that the disciples were astonished at His word. They were flabbergasted. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, in a much more even intimate way, He turns and He looks to them how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And He pinpoints the sin or the great love of this young man. Wealth. Having more than what you need. That is oftentimes a blessing of God. But at the same time can be a double-edged sword in which um, condemns a man as his heart is often gripped um, by the things that are all around him. And no doubt this man had great possessions, it says in verse 22. That term possessions um, is, is often used in uh, common literature of those days to speak of lands, great, um, great houses, great buildings, great acreage. Um, great possessions in a material sense. Um, but the term here in verse 23 and 24 is just a general term for wealth or riches. It doesn't necessarily mean the exact same thing. So he brings it from him, from, from, from the rich young ruler's perspective, and he brings it to the disciples who may not have the great lands and the great possessions, but still um, should be uh, warned of wealth. And so should, so should we. We need to understand um, the idea or the perspective in which wealth is to be um, lived out and carried and used. You know, wealth in and of itself is not a, um, is not a great evil. You know, God blessed Abraham and he had great wealth. God blessed Job and Job was a wealthy man. That Wealth in many times is seen as a blessing from God. We also need to understand that wealth when given is to be used for God's glory and the upbuilding of His kingdom, that your wealth as well as your heart um, should, should be gripped and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ in such that it is used for the upbuilding of the kingdom of God. That wealth is never used to bless a man or a woman to be uh, simply uh, to have a status of wealthiness so that they can simply hoard it uh, for self-preservation or to make someone else uh, more comfortable. That there's a great warning about wealth here that it can be a curse and that it can be a snare. If you'd like to, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 6. And you read some great instruction, both the positive and negative of wealth by um, Paul to, to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 9, you read these words. Uh, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And then the, the, the idea is, is that the desire, and you can actually see that kind of, um, that, that growth in Mark chapter number 10. In the first warning, he says, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And then the second warning is this, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches. It, it gravitates and it grows, not only from having riches, to putting your hope, your trust, your faith 
um, your rest, your peace in having some source of material wealth that becomes um, a God um, and, and, and in some way substitutes all of the hope, the peace, the riches or the, the, that, that God is supposed to have. Um, thus, he says that the desire to, to, to get rich is a snare that can plunge any man into destruction. This term here used of destruction and eternal perdition um, is, is, or, or perdition is, is, is used almost exclusively to speak of eternal perdition in the New Testament. That that's the, the love of money um, is the root of all sorts of evil, he says. And the idea is, is, is the same as Jesus' idea over in the Gospels that, that a man can't serve two masters, God and mammon, or God and money. That you can only have one. That those who put a yoke uh, or, or put on the yoke of mammon as their God will wander inevitably away from the faith and be pierced through with many sorrows, it says. Like an arrow or like a sword, like a spear through the gut, he says. Um, that that's what the sorrows, the sorrows it will bring inevitably and it will always bring. And that's the truth, isn't it? You know, uh, the reality of it is, is, is that men that are wealthy are rarely ever happy. And if it is, it's a fleeting moment. And they're pierced with many sorrows of that wealth. Why? Because with that wealth comes great responsibility. With that wealth comes great accountability. And with that wealth comes a great lust for more to secure it. With it comes great sorrows in which men um, cannot live without until they get more and more and more. That's that. He's speaking not of money, but that love of money, that lust of money um, in which it becomes their God and they yoke themselves to it and to, to which it governs their living and what they do and how they carry about. They are enslaved to it. Uh, but, but Paul also teaches us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the proper use of money. Verse 17, he says, command those. He's telling, he's saying, say this to your church. You know? Why? Because there may be people within your church that have riches and have wealth and, and, um, and, and have a, a love for money that is inordinate and will ultimately pierce them through. He says, Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. That it is an eternal issue, our love of money or our wise use of it. But there is to be a balance and that you're to realize that what you have in the wealth that you have um, is what God supplied you with. And that what God has given you is to be a means for you to enjoy it. Did you get that in 1 Timothy? That it's not wrong to enjoy the wealth that you have. It's not wrong to enjoy um, the, the, and take pleasure in the things that God has given you. But you're to do it and you're to do it for His sake. You're to do it for eternal consequences in an eternal pursuit in a desire to honor Christ. That whatever you have, you're to recognize that you don't have because you're smart. You don't have because you're skillful. You don't have because you're intellectual. You don't have because you have a great work ethic. It's because He is a gracious God who is determined to give you what you have as a means for you to glorify Him with it. Now you're not to love those things for their sake, but for His sake. Otherwise, you fall into a Romans 1 pit of loving the creature more than the Creator in which God turns you over to yourself and your money becomes your own destruction. 
That you're to possess wealth and that wealth is not to possess you. And a good way to take the spiritual temperature of your wealth is to simply ask that great question, what if it's gone? And this is a good question to ask if, uh, you know, if, you're, if you're trying to take the spiritual temperature of idolatry in your life as well. You know, Anything that you have that you can say that if it's gone, I worry that when it's gone because I wonder if I could ever truly be happy, if I could find peace or a reason to live. And this can happen. This is, this is the kicker, right? That this can happen even with good things. You know? As with the rich young ruler, am I ready to give it all away if God requires? Or do I see myself and my identity so attached to that thing that I think that even if it's gone, that, that when it goes, I can't find identity in Christ such that to live in this world. That I don't think that I could ever please Him in any way because I need those things to do it. Those things are a means by which um, I'm going to earn eternal life. I'm going to honor and glorify Him. So I must keep those things. Uh, when the reality is, is that maybe that was what was going through the rich young ruler's mind, that I need these things to make it to God when he says, essentially, that those things aren't the things that, 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 that bring you to me. Um, so what if it's gone? Am I ready to give it away if God requires? Not that it's evil in and of itself, but, but do I have an, an, an inordinate attachment to it such that um, if God required it, I could give it away freely? You may say, oh, God would never do that. He would never ask me to give those things away. And we ask ourselves, really? And we'll see in just the text that that's exactly what God often requires. You know? God often requires men to give up family, mother, brother, sister, child. God required Abraham to give his only son there on, on the mount. Um, the King of Glory Himself comes into the world, takes upon Himself the form of a servant to humble Himself and uh, for the last year of His ministry really to have nowhere to even lay His head. And you say, um, God wouldn't ask that of me. That's exactly what God often asks. And we try to spiritualize it and say, no, I, I need to keep these things because these are the ways that I honor God. When sometimes honoring God is giving up all those things. Um, to show that He is the all-sufficient, right? Paul says that uh, in weakness we find strength and that in our insufficiency is where he um, glorifies his sufficiency in us. Thus, Paul is left on many accounts with nothing, you know, nothing more than um, the clothes on his back in a Mamertine prison. That when God requires a man to come to him, God, God desires the whole man and everything that the man has. That everything that the man or the woman has is to submit and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And often, and there are times in which those things come in the way of, their, of our relationship with the Lord. And, and often that's when the Lord requires for those things to go. And that's why he goes on to say how difficult it'll be for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, particularly those who put their trust in, in riches. Let me just say that this, I think, comes explicitly here, um, particularly because that's who Jesus was dealing with, okay? And what I don't want to happen is for me to walk away today and say, man, I'm not that rich. I don't have anything to worry about. I think this comes simply, particularly because that's the man that they just dealt with. But I think from the testimony of Scripture, we could equally say, how difficult will it be for a sexually immoral man who loves immorality to enter into the kingdom of heaven? 
I think it would be equally right to say, man, how hard it is for those who love the acclamations and the love of men to enter into heaven. Man, how, how difficult would it be, you know, uh, for a man you know, who's working on Wall Street, who, who's a lover of money or a gambler, how, how difficult would it be for him, you know, um, to enter into the kingdom of heaven? That the point of the passage is not merely to condemn the lovers of money, but that idolatry and the love of anything greater than Christ will keep you out of the kingdom of God. That there is a sin that often enslaves all of us. And that while the abolishment of that sin will not take um, uh, completeness in that initial following of Christ, um, the love of Christ should overwhelm your soul that you're ready to give it up if that's what God requires. That's the idea. And then he goes on to make it even more explicit. Verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Um, it's easier. You know? And again, I would encourage you to read that with somewhat of a sanctified imagination if you could put that into a cartoon. You know, There are some that have tried to reason this passage away uh, I think within the uh, 19th century, there's uh, popular commentaries that came out that argued uh, that this wasn't really speaking of the eye of a needle or a camel. And they argued that somewhere in Jerusalem, there was a gate that was referred to as the eye of the needle. And that this gate was about five feet tall, so the average man could walk through, but a camel, if he came through, would have to skim off the luggage and he would have to bend and bow the knee to kind of skim his way through the eye of the needle. Uh, from what I can understand, there's no archaeology no that has ever supported such um, a place in Jerusalem. That I'm convinced that what Jesus is really talking about here is a, a needle and thread. You know, like mama takes and she sews up and she hems the garments or she um, does this or that. Um, and you would imagine that how difficult it is, you know, on a surgery table to, 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 to thread that suture through um, the eye of a, of a, of a needle or in, to, to sew up a garment, to imagine a camel trying to make it through that. That's the idea, that it is an impossibility, that it is unnatural, that there is no point um, in thinking that it would even be a possibility. That's what Jesus brings before the disciples. And that's why in verse 26 it says that they were greatly astonished. You know, previously they were astonished. This is a different word. It's, it's more exaggerated. That's why the New King James translates it greatly astonished. Their astonishment is now so pervasive that they are dumbfounded. Um, which also brings um, into light the idea of the camel going through the eye of the needle actually being a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's why they're astonished. And that's why they say, man, who can be saved? If they thought that this was a gate in which a camel could get through, um, you know, but with a difficulty, then they wouldn't ask the question, then who can be saved? Because then people could um, be saved as they walk the narrow road and push themselves in. That This utterly disturbs the disciples. Jesus just blows their paradigm of theology. And they ask, in essence, if a rich man can't be saved, then who can? Right? The idea is not to be hard on the rich. Again, the idea is that if the rich man can't get into heaven, then nobody can. I think that's the idea. You see, the health and wealth crowd is not a new crew. 
But if you study um, the times in which they're living in, there was much Jewish, many Jewish proponents that argued for um, the idea that God's blessing was um, contingent um, upon or, or was in reference to obedience. So what many Jewish believers thought, and maybe even the disciples, is that um, the blessing that this man received is because God favors him and has favored him. So the idea very well could be, and I think that this is the, the, the tenor of the passage, is that, that they're looking and saying that if this man who appears to be blessed by God can't get in and it's impossible for him, um, then, then, who, then, then do any of us have any hope? And Jesus tells them, in some sense, no. Verse number 27, with men it's impossible. He says, but not with God. And he tells them with men, this work of salvation, this entering into the kingdom is absolutely impossible. With men, the work of divorcing idols is absolutely uh, not on the table. With men, uh, to come into the world loving darkness and the, the hating light, it's an impossibility for them to lay aside their idols and to put them down and to love Christ in such a capacity in which um, they find favor in Him. That salvation is ultimately unattainable with men. That perfection is demanded. That perfection is demanded. You know? What did Christ mean when He said, one thing thou lackest? Did He mean, young man, you're almost there. Just keep going. Muscle through. Work harder. Think more. Labor. When the time's right, you'll get it. But James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Whoever shall keep the whole law yet offend in one is guilty of all. Or maybe when Jesus said to Mary, one thing is needful to Martha. And one thing that's needful is worship. Listen, when one thing is lacking, everything is faulty. When one thing's gone, it's all gone. Jesus here, I think as well, is a proponent of it's all or nothing. It must be done perfectly or it's considered not done at all. That's the idea. You offend in one point, you've offended in all. And then that... And that God's wrath rests upon the offense. That's the idea. That we ourselves cannot make that satisfaction of God's wrath. That we daily increase our debt. That we cannot by any means pay the debt that we owe God. Remember that Romans chapter 2 passage that we read just a few moments ago that daily as we neglect and we reject the, um, the grace of God and the goodness of God in leading to repentance, we store up to ourselves Daily wrath. That even in this attempt of Mark, this young rich ruler to come and sincerely bring himself and his deeds and his good works and his fulfillment of the law before him, it only condemned him more. You understand that? The very things that we think that we can make it to Christ with actually store up more wrath for us because we have a misunderstanding and we're trying to climb up the ladder and that's an offense to God as well. That there is no way that, that payment can be granted because even in our pursuit of payment, our, our righteousness, the text says, um, in, in, in the Old Testament is, is as filthy rags. That the best that we have to bring before a holy God um, is even an offense to God. That that's the idea. 
That with men it's impossible. There is no possibility. Perfection is demanded to reach and to inherit eternal life. Thus that whenever you pursue it in and of yourselves outside of Christ, you actually uh, do, you never contribute to your own salvation, but you actually contribute more to your own uh, condemnation as you continue to store up wrath. Why? Because even the best that you have to offer to God um, is as filthy rags before Him. Um, and that... And that's the issue of all man. Let's not pick on the rich man. The rich man is an illustration to show us the me man. <laughs> you know? The man that's me. I pray to God that he one day trusted in Christ at a later date because of his sincerity and his earnestness. But at the same time, we realize that the text ended there for a purpose. That it was preserved for us for a reason. To reveal to ourselves our own heart. You know, it's like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless you know, you, you, your perfection unless you, uh, you, exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. That there is an impossibility to reach it with man. But with God, all things are possible, He says. Hence the turn. <laughs> Hence the grace in the text. He doesn't leave them there. He doesn't leave them quite the same perplexed, but maybe perplexed in a different way. That He says with men it is impossible, but not with God. May God help me to illustrate or to, 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 to propagate this truth even now, because this is where the, the emphasis of the text should be. For with God all things are possible. That with God all things are possible. That God alone can save. That that's the point. That man can never top one idol, but God can kill them all. That man can never change his own heart, but God um, administers them daily to every nation, tribe, and tongue. That God alone can work a supernatural work in the hearts of men such that when we see Christ and all of His majesty and beauty and righteousness in such a way that we've never seen Him before, that man in this, this impossible condition is not left alone because God alone comes to him and brings to naught all the enslaving loves of their souls and gives them an all-encompassing love for Christ. That God alone in the Gospel has the power to take the most vile of sinners, whether it's a rich man who has um, invested in his, enslaved into his own wealth, or a man, an idolater, a coveter, a blasphemer, an unforgiver, and so much the more, and make them devout. Saints, that that's what this text is teaching. Look, with men it is impossible, men. But with God, all things are possible. God saves sinners. Listen, I'm up here saying that with salvation, you must believe and you must repent and you must obey. But at the same time, I'm saying with you, that's impossible. You don't have the strength. You don't have the intellect. You don't have the will to break your idols. And you know it. And I know it. That we don't have the power or the will to believe and to follow one we've never seen or merely read His words in Scripture. And that's why men can spend week after week or month after month or year after year reading the text of Scripture and never coming to the place to where they truly believe or understand. You know, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. A little poem John Bunyan wrote, Run, John, run, he says, the law demands. 
but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the Gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. That it's not Him who wheels or Him who runs, but God gives mercy. That today salvation is possible simply because of the grace of God. And that in the new covenant, a new heart is given. Hebrews chapter 8, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, in which the law of God is written upon your heart. And you know what the great law is, that great commandment? It is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's it. That was the law that's written upon our hearts. That's the law law that's written upon your heart in the new covenant. As the gospel goes forth and melts, and tumults and, and tumults and just and just just hammers our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and God by his spirit comes into us and he gives us a greater love for the majesty and the glory of Christ than never before thus provokes us to obedience by faith by fe- obedience by faith that yes you are to repent and yes you are to believe and yes you are to obey and that those are demands of the gospel that those things can only come through the power of the spirit of God and a new heart that's the idea. That's how it's possible. It's possible because Christ died and, and endured the wrath that we so deserve um, such that uh, when we put our faith and trust in Him, the benefits are bestowed upon us. That's it. I love what Isaac Watts writes in that great old hymn. His dying crimson like a robe spreads over his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. My all. But that's what the gospel demands. The gospel demands it all. And can I tell you that when the gospel demands it all, the gospel also promises all. And that's what you see in the next portion of the text. And I may spend more time on this in the coming days, but just to give you a glimpse of it, I want to show you what he left. I want to show you what the gospel brings. You know, so many days we spend our time, or at least I, maybe I do because I'm the preacher and I'm, I'm the pastor, but maybe you do as well as we go in and, and we, 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 we ride home on the gospel and the demands of the gospel and leaving father and leaving mother and leaving this and leaving that and, 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 and being persecuted in trials and tribulation. And we look at it and we say, oh, woe is me and woe are those who preach the gospel for his sake because they will be maligned and persecuted, um, given over to trials and tribulation. But I found this passage to be such a comfort in my soul as God not only tells us what Jesus not only tells them what they'll give up but what they'll get that's what the gospel brings that the demands of the gospel are high thus God takes upon himself the responsibility to fulfill those demands for us and that at the end of the day when the gospel is received so is everything that's in Christ. And that's what he says. Uh, verse number 27. But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And then Peter began to say to him, See, we've left all and followed you. Peter, you got to love Peter. He's the guy who's always out at the forefront. He's always the guy who's asking the questions. First thing pops into his mind. And what does he ask? It could, could very well be that 
Um, the demands are laid upon this rich young ruler to leave everything that they have. And at some point during the conversation, Peter concludes, we've done that, Lord. We have. At some point in the Gospel, Jesus looks at Peter and, and the other disciples and says, in essence, drop your nets, men, and come and follow Me. I will make you fishers of men. What do they do? They drop the nets and they come with Him. And it very well could be that in the midst of the conversation that He's reminded of that. That He left business. That He left a great, um, a great opportunity to provide for His family. He left father and mother in some sense. He left family to follow Christ. So he looks at Jesus and he says, so what do we get if that's the case? And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't chide him for it, does he? Jesus simply answers the question and says, take it to the bank assuredly, I say to you, that there is no one who has done that, left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive an hundredfold now in this time. Did you catch that? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And the first thing that we bring to the forefront is, is that this man thought he was giving it all up. But had he gave it all up, he would have been even wealthier, the text says. That he gave up eternal joy and even riches in Christ here for a few acres of dirt. That he not only preaches to a gospel of, that Jesus not only preaches a gospel of cost and consequences, but also a gospel of unfathomable reward. Such that we can say that in Christ, even in this life, He says, a hundredfold more of what you're giving up you will receive in this life. That in Christ there are such indulgent benefits that it should provoke us to love Him even more. Peter, we've left it all. Then what will there be for us? Christ? More than you could ever imagine. First of all, there will be a spiritual family. He says, you give up family, I'll give you family. And that's the, the focus of the New Testament. The, the focus of the New Testament is not on the, the, the nuclear family, but the family of God. And it very well could be contained within this. This is somewhat symbolic or metaphor of, of, of the people of God. That you may leave father, mother, wife, children, uh, or lands for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but you will receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. That with your persecutions and with your trials, there will be an abundance of spiritual benefits that come with serving and honoring me for my sake and for the gospel's sake in this life. That there is a bond in the people of God that transcends even the natural affection among men. And you see this all throughout the New Testament. Follow me, he's saying, and you'll have more brothers and more sisters and more mothers and more fathers than you'll ever know what to do with. You'll find mothers and fathers out there that you didn't know that you had. That there's a glorious aspect about being a part of the church and the body of Christ. And I believe that what you see in the culture right now is, 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 is the exact opposite of that. God wrecking American individualism, 
Um, the idea that you're alone in an island and that you can have your possessions and go to church on Sundays. But, the, but Christianity um, is not that. Um, it's a family of people who come together as, as brother, sister, mother, father, uh, son, or daughter, and they fulfill um, the kingdom of God in some respects and God's desire. We see that all throughout the New Testament. We see that in Jesus' life as He takes to Him children. We see that in the Apostles' life as He takes upon Himself sons like Timothy and Onesimus and others. We see in Romans chapter 16 and verse 13, Paul refers to someone at Rome um, as his mother. And what we see is we see that the spiritual benefit of being in Christ, it will be 100-fold even greater when embraced. Um, that while it's great, the cost is great and the consequences sometimes even greater, um, the benefits are Im immeasurable. But he also says that in, in, in what you'll get in some sense is persecutions. That following Christ always means persecution and hostility for Christ's sake. Philippians 1.29 says that you're not only granted faith, but also to suffer with those who believe. That you're graced with that. The persecutions in Matthew 5, that you are blessed to be persecuted. That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. That blessed, that happy, that joyful are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he culminates it with this, rejoice and be glad. That in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40 and verse 40 through 42, um, that men that were just imprisoned and beaten and battered and persecuted for Christ's sake um, says we cannot be silent. You know what you find them doing? Rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. That the work of God in our hearts is the change of that very thing. That when He gives us a new heart and He writes the law of God upon our hearts, upon that heart is written to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your, and your neighbor as yourself. And that through persecution and through family life, spiritual benefits accrue such that it outweighs, even in this life, anything and everything that you might cling to, whether it's wealth, possessions, or even um, relationships. And that's the idea. The idea is, is that many who are first will be last and that the last will be first. And in some sense, in the context here, I think this is what he's saying. I think he's saying that those who give up will receive more. So much more than what they ever could have clung to with their hands. That this young rich ruler walks away with the wealth that many would die for and live their lives um, uh, striving after. And he gave up everything to do it. He would give up nothing in this life to receive everything in the next. Um, and thus, that's the great tragedy of that young man. Right? That, that salvation is impossible because we by nature are children given over to disobedience. And that when Christ pervades the soul, we see Him in His glory and His majesty in such a way that everything else pales in comparison to those things. Thus we leave it and pursue them for the joy that is in them. That's the idea all throughout the New Testament. That's the idea in Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 44. That a man finds a field and the treasure in it, thus he sells. And the text there says that for the joy that is in it. 
That the joys and the pleasures of this life are for a season, thus we often pursue them. But there is a joy in Christ that we are to pursue, and even for the joy. We are to pursue and to leave everything aside for Christ, and for Christ's sake alone. That's the idea. But the idea here is not that you lay aside certain things and there's some value in the monastic living. He says here for, for Him, for Christ, and for the gospel's sake. And Luke says for the kingdom's sake. That what I desire more than anything is for us this morning. It's not to think that we can earn any stature with God, but that, but, but that through here, through the preaching, through this ministry, um, through, through, through whatever and anything ever that we do, that, that every single sermon, every single song, every single prayer, every single fellowship resolve, revolves around Christ and Christ alone. That that is the nature of the benefits. That is the nature of what this man left. And that we are to pursue Christ. We are to pursue the kingdom, the ministry, whatever it is for that sake. That, that Christ is the ultimate motivation. And that there should be joy in Christ. That, we are, that it is okay to pursue the kingdom for the benefits of the kingdom. That it's okay to pursue Christ for the joy that is in Christ. That that's overwhelmingly all throughout the New Testament that, that, that satisfaction comes in Christ, that, that there are benefits in Christ, that there are things there that you'll have even in this life and in the next that, 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 that should cause us to pursue Him even greater for the joy that is in Him. You know? That we want to think that, um, that, 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 that super spiritual Christianity is often doing is dutiful obligatory obligations, right? Drudgery. But Paul didn't look at it that way. Paul ran for a crown. Paul fought for a prize. Paul pursued Christ for the joy that was in him. Peter writes of the inexpressible joy and that is full of glory. John speaks of the satisfaction that we find in Christ. Jeremiah condemns a people because they've committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewn out for them cisterns which are broken and can hold no water. They can find that, that, that men are finding satisfaction in a hundred other things instead of finding satisfaction in Christ. That is the part of the condemnation of men. And that you are to pursue Christ for Christ's sake and the joy that you find in Him. I love what one commentator puts. He says, to conceive of discipleship solely in the terms of its cost and sacrifices is to conceive of it wrongly. As though in marrying a beautiful bride, a young man would only think of what he is giving up. To Peter's plaintive assertion of having left everything to follow Jesus, Jesus promises a hundred times as much. The sacrifices they make in leaving homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields to follow Jesus are nothing compared to the returns they will receive in the community of faith now and in heaven in the life to come. He goes on to say authentic acts of obedience and discipleship are like the five loaves and two fish that Jesus receives and multiplies to feed the 5,000. Simple, humble, yet costly acts of discipleship are like the despairing seeds that against all odds yield a harvest a hundred times greater. From the perspective of bumper crop, one looks back on the labor and risk of sowing in a vastly different light. The miracle and the plenty of the harvest verify the inherent rightness of the costly act of sowing. Likewise, the reward of eternal life makes the sacrifices of discipleship look insignificant in comparison to the lavish blessing of God. Can I ask you a question today? Do you enjoy God?
Have you ever wondered why the reformers phrased that great, that first great catechism question the way that they did? What is the chief end of man? To glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That salvation in some sense is communion and union with Christ such that we are now married. And yes, we lay aside so many things and there are consequences and persecutions and trials and various other things. And we think there's some inherent virtue in laying those things aside. But if you never enjoy God, if you never find Christ, then what are you running after? You know, like if He's not the purpose, if He's not the delight, if He's not the joy, if He's not the treasure in the field, then I beg you not to sell it all and buy it and find your satisfaction in the field and not in the treasure. People have bought Christianity and they've branded it a hundred different ways and they've left Christ by the wayside. Why? Because they find no enjoyment in Him. It's not enough to get together and just revel in His glory with some simple songs and prayers with Christ's presence among us and the preaching of God's Word. It's, it's not enough. We have, to, we have to fix it up and fluff it up and, and put on bells and whistles to make Christ more beautiful. Is He not beautiful enough? You know, Is He not precious enough? Is He not valuable enough? Are the, the benefits of this not enough? As you look around and you see Christ in one another and just the immeasurable benefits, you know? And we labor day in and day out and we try to find ways to just, 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 in, just add more flavor. Like, is He not flavorful enough? Is He not the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen in this life? Is He not the, the, the most worthy endeavor of this congregation and this church and this family of believers is He not the preeminent thing? If He's not, then I'm begging you today, let's close the doors. Because we would just spend the rest of our lives deceiving ourselves, thinking that we are a rich young ruler, bringing something before God um, that He will approve of when He will not. If we do not bring Christ um, joyful, willful, obedient, faith, um, because of what He's wrought in our hearts and we see Christ more clearly and beautifully than we've ever seen Him before and we don't do these things for Christ and His sake, then we are just heaping up to ourselves condemnation until the day of wrath. That's it. So I ask you today, why are you here? I ask you why you labor, why you toil, why you do so much. I ask you... Do you enjoy God? Do you take great pleasure in Him? You know? I ask myself this week when I preach, do I preach with great pleasure in Him? And a lot of days I don't. A lot of days I'm that moral young man, rich young ruler saying, God, will you love me now? Instead of just preaching because He already loves me. You know? Afraid of failure because I don't know if he'll love me more or he'll love me less, you know. And that's the way I looked at my earthly father, my earthly mother, and many of you. Many of you, I care too much what you think. And it causes me to waver. It causes me to wonder. It causes me so much anxiety and worry in my own heart because I'm, an, I'm a fine, earnest, sincere, moral young man. You know, 
And all that will do one day is just heap up for me more condemnation if not for Christ. To recognize that I am loved because He first loved me. And I am to love Him because He first loved me. And that the Gospel is summed up in this, not in inherently faith and inherently works and inherently obedience, but it's in Christ. In Christ, the Gospel is Christ. And the question this morning is, is that do you have Him and do you love Him more than anything else in this life such that you're willing to give it up and to lay it down at all costs? You know? And I've asked myself that with good things, with great things, you know? With things that you would look at and you would say, no, keep those, you're doing well, you know? But I also ask myself things like ministry, things like preaching, things like teaching, you know, good things. Things like work, things like career, things like everything, you know? And I ask myself, you know, do I come before you today, Christ, as a nice, fine, young, moral man? Or do I just bring these things before you because Christ is altogether lovely and deserving of my life and everything that I have? You know? I understand that dutiful, obligatory, drudgery type obedience is better than no obedience at all. And some days that's the Christian life. But if you've been living the Christian life like that for years and never found joy or pleasure or enjoyment in Christ, I wonder if you have the gospel because that's what Christ is. He is those things. And I find it hard to believe that you can find Christ and never have found joy. Find Christ and never have been pleased with Him. Find Christ and never been satisfied to be alone with Him. Found Christ and always needed more. Found Christ and never satisfied. I found Christ, yet I'm never content. I found Christ, yet I'm always anxious. I found Christ, yet I'm always worrisome. I found Christ uh, and, and all of these things that are the very opposite of Christ. Listen, friends, then you've probably not found Christ. And that's not to say that you'll never have hard days and that's not to say that you'll never worry and that's not to say that you'll never be anxious but that that is to say that in your pursuit that you'll often turn from those things and turn to Christ because if you don't, those things would break you. You know? Because they are broken cisterns which cannot hold water. They will not fill you. They could never satisfy and if you've never been satisfied in Christ, if you've never been content in Him, if you've never found peace at any moment, then I, then, I, then I wonder if you're like a rich young ruler. I've wondered that about myself some days. That in it there are extreme benefits and if you've never tasted the benefits, if you've never seen the benefits, if you've never gloried in the benefits and you've never ran after the benefits for Christ's sake, then listen, you're not living the way that God desired for us to live. That yes, you give up so much, and yes, it's costly, and yes, you lay aside so many things, and yes, you'll be beaten, maligned, battered, and bruised, but it will be altogether worth it because of the benefits that we have in Christ. And that's why Paul can say that he counts all things as a loss with the excellency that he has found in Christ. Is Christ today to you the most excellent thing about this? And about you? And about your family? And about your ministry? Is Christ's most excellent? Or do we bring him today just more of the same? Trying to earn favor with God, 
only heaping up for ourselves more wrath until the day of judgment. And I beg you and pray that it's the former. I, I lay before you today the best that I can and all my feebleness and my, my frailty and my, 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 my poor communication. And I, I beg you today to stop laboring, to stop putting all your effort into gaining some stature with God and just see Him as He is in Christ, find enjoyment and pleasure in Him such that it draws out of you a joyful, willful, loving obedience such that that thing that you're striving after is so worth the benefits that, it, that everything else behind you you can count as a loss and nothing because it wasn't for Christ. You see, we talk about those people all the time that have just given up everything, given up everything, given up everything, given up everything. And I guarantee you today in heaven or across the world, they would tell you, I gave nothing up. I gained it all. I gained it all. That's the perspective that when the treasure is before us and Christ is there, there is nothing too great or too little to give up and that when it's behind you, it's not even a memory anymore because it pales into comparison as to what you have in you now. And that thing is Christ. Is Christ that thing that you're ultimately satisfied and content in and take ultimate joy and pleasure and on many days you get up and you run the race because that's, what you, that's what's yours and that's what's meaningful, and that's and you do it for His sake and not your own. You deny yourself so that, that He can be honored and He can be glorified. You know, do you stand and preach? Do you teach? Do you pray? Do you raise your family so at the end of the day the world would say, say you're wasting your time and you can engage in other things, and you say, no, 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 I do this and I do this so that Christ may be honored and Christ may be glorified, and that I do it for Christ's sake. Thus, their maligning and their persecutions and their naysay and their, their lies are just fodder in your ears as you smile because you take ultimate joy in Christ. And I think you get the point and I'll stop now. I love you dearly. And pray that Christ is honored today. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the privilege it is just to glory in Your name. Father, I thank You for Christ. Father, I thank You for good things. Father, we're reminded that those things are given to us just by the grace of God. Father, on how many days have we failed you in bowing the knee to the creature more than the creator, not recognizing that those things come from you and should just be a platform of worship, projecting us to worship the creator God of heaven and earth. That those things submit to you and show us your majesty and your glory and your character. Father, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my failings and my shortcomings. I'm sorry for doing so many things 
for myself. And even when I do them for others on many days, it's a selfish pursuit. Father, I've wasted a lot of my life. But at the same sense, it's not much of a waste if it's projecting me towards you. Father, I recognize in Romans 8 that all things work together for good to those who love God and love and are called according to his purpose. And recognize that the life that I've led even till now, Father, has been all to point me towards you. So in a sense, I don't glory in my failings and shortcomings and sins, but at the same time, Father, I recognize that those things have brought me to your feet. So in that sense, Father, you're good. And those things were as well. Father, it's, it's tiring on most days. It's exhausting. Living for self. Exalting self. Finding joy in self. It's so fleeting. Father, you extend so much grace. You are so patient and long-suffering. But sinful men like myself. But at the same time, Father, I glory in your Son. God, I glory in him. God, what grace, what mercy, what majesty, what glory, what character, Father, that you and your Son and your Spirit would have with sinners like us. Father, may you make him just the ultimate object of my affection and the affection of this church. Father, may we just run after the great benefits that we have in Christ and in one another. Father, may the gospel be the central, the, the central thing of this church, Father. May, may everything that we do and every bit of ministry, Father, just revolve around that. Um, that, that thing that we call the gospel, that good news, that, 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 that person of Christ. Father, would you help me on a day in and day out to pursue it for the joy that is in Christ? Would you, would you help me, Father, to preach with joy and pleasure um, because I preach of, that, that, the, of, the, of, the, of the work of Christ? Father, would, would that just be overly evident to a lost and a dying world as we gather together, Father, and as I lead my home? Father, may I count nothing that I've lost as a, great, as, as a loss at all because of all the things that I found in Christ. All of the benefits in the family of God, all the spiritual truths, Father, that are reality for me now, Father. Uh, may I enjoy Him now. May I not wait to heaven, till heaven, Father, to enjoy Him and all of His benefits, but may I enjoy Him now. That I have all the divine uh, blessings and spiritual blessings in heavenly places, Father, and may I find Him now, Father. And we need You for this, because with men it's impossible. But with God all things are possible. So, Father, we lay ourselves before you, begging you to accomplish that work that we cannot accomplish. Father, I don't know how to love you more other than just to see you more. So, Father, show me your glory. And suffice it to say, Father, that I'm fine with whatever that means. Do what you need to do to make yourself known and help me to see the great inherent value, Father, in that and not count whatever I lose as a loss for the glory and majesty of Christ.
that we have received. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.